Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 73. Last week, I covered the place known as Sidon. As a refresher, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob promised his son Zebulun that the border of his territory would be at Sidon. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing the last little bit of Genesis 49 and about two-thirds of Genesis 50, and finally diving into Egyptian funerary practices. So let's get started. When I last left off, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob spoke his final words to his sons, bequeathing them the territory in Canaan, all while they were living as refugees, of a sort, in northern Egypt. And, as soon as he finished, he reiterated that he wished to be buried with his ancestors in his homeland in Canaan. With assurances to that received, he then died. And thus ends chapter 49, which brings me to Genesis chapter 50. And when he died, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept. And then his leadership instinct kicked in. He ordered the physicians to embalm his father, and they did as he commanded. And all three versions I use for the podcast call the people physicians. But it's clear that our modern concept of a physician is something different entirely. The embalming process, according to Genesis, took 40 days. And to avoid any confusion, this most likely means that they were mummifying him. But to be clear, the text doesn't say that. But a 40-day process would have been a really long time for a simple embalming. And, as I'll get into in a bit, 40 days is a bit too short for how we currently understand the mummification process to work. I'll explain why at the end of this episode. As one of several forewarnings, a few parts of the process are somewhat grotesque in our modern world, but it is the history. But in deference to those of you with a weak stomach, I'll wait until the end of this episode to describe the process. That way, all you have to do is stop the podcast, and no need to worry. And with that, let's get back to Genesis 50. After the embalming in the narrative, it's mentioned that the Egyptians mourned for 70 days. It's unclear if the 70 days ran concurrently with the 40, or if it was a period afterwards but that it was Egyptians' mourning for the period is rather impressive. And finally, keep the number 70 in the back of your mind. After the mourning period had passed, Joseph asked Pharaoh for a leave of absence so that he could take his father's body back to Canaan and bury him. In doing so, he informed the Egyptian monarch that he had promised his father he would complete the rites as his father had requested. Of course, Pharaoh granted his valuable employee the requested time off. And the funeral procession was no small affair. The text in the New Revised Standard Version reads that, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the households of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Both chariots and charioteers went up with him, 
It was a very great company, end quote. Which, given the description of the funeral party, seems like a tremendous understatement. The story continues. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they held there a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed a time of mourning for his father seven days. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizrim. It is beyond the Jordan. End quote. So, I'm going to pause here for a few small explanations. First, they came to the threshing floor of Atad. Of course, this is a reference to the threshing of grain. And the floor where this is done could be either indoors or out. Now, for the place and time, it was probably outdoors. A threshing floor was built in a place that was exposed to the wind, such as a hilltop, to aid in the winnowing separating the grain from the chaff. Threshing floors were usually paved with a hard material, such as cobblestone, but they could also be just an exposed portion of bedrock, and sometimes it was just compacted soil. The floors typically had a slight slope, as this prevents standing water after rain. They were also, sometimes, surrounded by a low stone wall. And this threshing floor reference in Genesis chapter 50 was either owned by a man named Atad or at a location of the same name. Now, Atad is an old Hebrew word that translates to buckthorn, which is a large shrub or sometimes a small tree native to the region. And curiously, and maybe this is just a coincidence, buckthorns are regularly confused with dogwoods. The name buckthorn stems from the woody spine found at the end of their twigs. As for the possibility that it was a threshing floor owned by a man named Atad, who knows? But the word is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. As for Abel Mizraim, this is a phrase that, according to the footnotes, translates to either the mourning, meaning weeping, of Egypt, or the meadow of Egypt, it, too, is mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Back to the text. Thus his sons did for him as he had instructed them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, the field near Mamre, which Abraham bought as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father." End quote. And one observation that I have no explanation for, and that's the second to the last word, his. He went up with his brothers to bury his father, not their father. Now, I recognize I'm probably being a bit pedantic, but it may indicate who wrote the text, or maybe the bias of the author. Or maybe something was lost in translation. Or, that's just the way the phrase is commonly structured in ancient Hebrew. Not that it mattered too much. Okay, moving along. My intent for this episode was to finish summarizing the chapter, chapter 50. 
but given the depth that I'm about to get into for the Egyptian funeral practices, the remainder of the chapter, which are two sections concerning Joseph and his brothers, and the rest of Joseph's life, we'll have to wait till next week. Okay, so I'll now circle back and cover the Egyptian funeral practices. The first part is rather tame, and the second a bit more detailed. I'll give you fair warning before venturing into what may be a bit, um, unsettling. And one more note. I contemplated waiting on the topic until I was well into the Egyptian history, but then the context of Jacob being embalmed would lose its value. And with that, Egyptian funeral practices. So, how did this process work? Well, first off, what we know usually comes to us primarily through Herodotus, a 5th century BC Greek historian. Actually, that's not quite as true as it used to be. Modern technology, meaning x-rays, CAT scans, and MRIs, have yielded further insight into the process. I'll weave the two together. Upon death, the deceased family would contact the embalmers, remembering that in Genesis they were referred to as physicians. Either way, these professionals offered three levels of service. Now, why three levels? Well, in ancient Egyptian society, everyone was eligible for the service, even criminals, but not everyone had the means to afford all of the bells and whistles. Think of it as an ancient version of good, better, and best. And before I dive too deeply, keep in mind that what we know of the funerary practices align with the Egyptian polytheistic religious practices and their concept of an afterlife. Now, as with most things in life, what was conceived as the best service was also the most expensive. But this wasn't a time to be too cheap. Egyptians believed that if the family could afford the best service, but did not choose it, then there was the possibility that they would be haunted. More specifically, the deceased would be cognizant that they had been given an inferior service and would not be able to pass peacefully into the afterlife. As a measure of revenge, they would return to make their relatives' lives miserable, and such intentional misery would last until the wrong was righted. Now, this whole haunting was possible due to their belief that the dead could still see and hear, and if wronged, would be granted permission by their gods for revenge. So they would usually opt for the best service they could afford. Life was already tough enough. You didn't need a haunting to make it any tougher. And Egyptians even mummified their pets, meaning their cats and dogs. Also, the mummified remains of gazelles, fish, birds, baboons, and even the apis bull have been found. Of that list, the bull, believe it or not, is probably the least surprising of all, as they considered the bovine to be an incarnation of the divine. Okay, so that's the demand side of the equation. And now for the service itself. One of the big dividing points in a cheap versus an expensive service was the type of salt used to dry the body. The high-end service relied on what is known as natron, which roughly translates to divine salt. Now, this isn't salt in a traditional sense. 
Instead, it's a natural blend of sodium bicarbonate, sodium carbonate, sodium sulfate, and sodium chloride. We would also call these minerals baking soda, soda ash, sulfate of soda, and table salt, respectively. The one thing they all have in common is that they are phenomenal drying agents. But how did the Egyptians come up with this mixture? Well, as it turns out, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers northwest of the modern city of Cairo is an area known as the Wadi Natron. These several, mostly dry lake beds in the area produce great amounts of the salt that bears its name. And lower-end services would use a more common salt, primarily sodium chloride, table salt, for embalming. And I'll skip ahead to the funeral service so everyone can get a taste of it. Egyptian funerals were typically done in public, and this aligns with what we see in Genesis 50. The more well-off would go as far as to hire professional mourners who would encourage people to express their grief through their own cries and weeping. This profession was usually undertaken by women, who were known as the Kites of Nephthys. Nephthys was an Egyptian goddess charged with protecting mummies. I don't know who protected daddies. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Anyway, the mourning women would lament on the brevity of life and the suddenness of death, but they also reassured the living of the internalness of the soul. Of course, this was if they passed the test of Osiris, when he would weigh their heart. I may cover that belief at some point in the future. That is, if I go into depth on the Egyptian religion and afterlife. Items, known as grave goods, would be placed in the tomb. Now these included Shavi dolls. The Egyptians believed these dolls could be awoken in the afterlife and would take on the deceased's daily tasks. More specifically, they considered the afterlife to be an eternal and perfect vision of the broken life in the mortal realm. But there was work to be done there just as there is here. The now animated dolls would perform these tasks so the soul could relax and enjoy itself. To us today, these dolls serve as indicators to the wealth and status of the individual buried in the tombs where they are found. The more Shakti dolls, the greater the wealth. Or maybe, the more Shakti dolls, the busier the multitasker. And I wonder if Pharaoh, when he was buried, had a doll that looked like Joseph. After all, Joseph did all of his work here, too. And, as you've probably seen if you've toured any type of Egyptian museum exhibit, there were other items found in the grave goods thought to be necessary in the afterlife. Combs, jewelry, beer, bread, clothing, personal weapons, sentimental objects, and even their pets. After embalming, the body was then placed in a coffin, usually made of wood. Sometimes, multiple coffins were used, one inside the other, similar to the traditional Russian nesting dolls, known as Matroska dolls. The coffin was then placed in the sarcophagus, made of either wood or stone. Now, as for adornment, the coffins were frequently decorated both on the inside and out in a variety of styles. Some coffins have been found with images of food on the interior, believed to be there to offer sustenance to the deceased. 
and the exterior of the sarcophagi were at times painted with eyes on the side that faced east. Why were they oriented towards the east? Well, it's theorized that the belief was the deceased could look out at the world and see the rising sun, maybe akin to reawakening in the afterlife. Finally, the family placed the sarcophagus in the tomb, usually upright against the wall, at least according to Herodotus. And this is your last warning before I get very specific on the embalming process. I'll give you a slight pause just to think it through. Okay, so for the two of you that decided to stick it out, here goes. In the most expensive version, the body was placed on a table and washed. Once the washing was complete, the practitioners would start at the head and work their way downwards. In the next section is a translated quote from Herodotus. The brain was removed via the nostrils with an iron hook, and what cannot be reached with the hook is washed out with drugs. Sometimes the nose was purposely broken to extract the organ. The broken nose parts paraphrase. Next, the flank, meaning chest, my words again, is opened with a flint knife and the whole contents of the abdomen removed. The cavity is then thoroughly cleaned and washed out. Firstly, with palm wine, and again with an infusion of ground spices. After that, it is filled with pure myrrh, cassia, and every other aromatic substance, excepting frankincense, and sewn up again, after which the body is placed in a tron, covered entirely for over 70 days, never longer. When this period is over, the body is washed and then wrapped from head to foot in linen cut into strips and smeared on the underside with gum, which is commonly used by the Egyptians instead of glue. The gum served as both a waterproofing and antimicrobial agent. And those are my words. Of course, Herodotus had no clue about microbes. Back to his quote. In this condition, the body is given back to the family who have a wooden case made, shaped like a human figure, into which it is put." End quote. And now, besides the gore, the one thing that stands out to me is the 70-day period. Remember, Genesis quoted a 40-day period. Not that the difference matters much. And I certainly don't think Joseph, one of the most well-off people in Egypt, was shortchanging the father he loved so dearly. Herodotus, though, was very specific about the time. A shorter period would yield a body that was not completely dehydrated, and any longer and the body would stiffen and probably be too stiff to move into position for wrapping. Remember in Genesis when it said that the embalming took 40 days and the morning 70 days? And also, do you remember when I said I wasn't going to wade into the infallible versus inerrant debate? way back in the beginning of the podcast? Well, you can be your own judge. To me, the number of days doesn't matter. Jacob was embalmed and then, as promised, taken back to Canaan. Joseph was both a man of means and his word. That's all that matters. Getting back to the Egyptian practices, and this is speculating a bit, the process may have been different in 500 B.C., 
the time of Herodotus than it was in the 19th century BC, which is about the time when it is thought that Jacob lived, 1400 years before Herodotus. And one more thing, apparently the internal organs were removed, not just to aid in the preservation of the body, but because it was thought the deceased would need them in the afterlife. In order to do this, the organs were placed in four ceramic vases and sealed with the body in the tomb. Except for the heart, it was left inside the body, as the Egyptians believed it to be the residing place of the soul. Oh, and the brain. It seems the Egyptians did not understand its function, as they just threw it out. Quite frequently, the face of the decedent was painted to make it look lifelike and the hair smartly arranged. And one final observation, Herodotus specified a flint knife, probably made of Ethiopian flint. And his writing was well into the Iron Age, when the knife could have been made, of course, of iron, or bronze, or copper, or any of a number of metals. I could find no explanation why it was made of flint, a Stone Age tool. Modern researchers, especially those utilizing the previously mentioned imaging techniques, have a slightly different take. First, they think instead of using an iron hook inserted through the nose, a rod was used to liquefy the brain through the skull. The liquefied mess then drained out through the nose, utilizing gravity. The embalmers would then rinse the skull with certain substances that removed any residual brain tissue and also had the effect of eliminating bacteria. Okay, so that's the most expensive option. The second most preferred burial method was, of course, less intensive. In it, and again according to Herodotus, no incision is made and the intestines are not removed but oil of cedar is injected with a syringe into the body through the anus, which afterwards is stopped up to prevent the liquid from escaping. The body is then cured in a tron for the prescribed number of days, on the last of which the oil is drained off. The effect is so powerful that as it leaves the body, it brings with it the viscera, meaning the internal organs, in a liquid state and as the flesh has been dissolved by the natron, nothing of the body is left but the skin and bones. After this treatment, it is returned to the family without further attention. End quote. In this process, Herodotus does say that the body sits for a specific number of days, but does not give us an exact number. And, the fact that the internal organs were dissolved meant that they couldn't have been placed in jars for use in the afterlife. Herodotus did not detail the burial process in the mid-grade rite. The current theory is that they were probably placed in a tomb known as a shaft tomb, essentially a deep vertical shaft that led to horizontal chambers. In my mind's eye, it's similar to a traditional coal mine only on a smaller scale, and in this option, the coffins were typically terracotta. Finally, the economical option was the least intensive of all. In this process, the embalmers would, once again quoting Herodotus, simply wash out the intestines and keep the body for 70 days in a tron. End quote. 
and he literally said nothing else. A good assumption is that the body was given back to the family. After that, who knows? And, as you would suspect, I could not find a single example of a mummy that was preserved in this manner that survived to be uncovered by archaeologists. Now, the entire process, especially the most expensive option, worked so well that many mummies to this day have retained their skin, hair, and recognizable features such as tattoos and scars, even after 4,000 years. And that's the thought I'll end this episode on. Join me next week when I'll summarize the remainder of chapter 50, the last chapter of the first book of the Bible. And with that, I'll also provide a summary of the book, as best as I can in the little time that I have. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and you get them as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.